ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark 10. You can have a one-week one reprieve from our study through the book of Daniel as we look at Mark chapter 10 this morning. Uh, we are going to read just a, a very small section of verses in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16 of Mark chapter 10. We will first read and then explore a bit. Mark 10, verse 13. All right. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So that's our text this morning. It's a text that I have selected. Um, It's been a very busy week. Uh, Many of you working uh, with children, many of you uh, faithfully work with children anyway, and I thought it might be appropriate to take a look at this passage. Uh, Hopefully it is somewhat familiar to us as Christian people. Um, It has fueled all sorts of Christian hymns and songs. Jesus loves the little children. I like that song. Uh, I'll find myself whistling it or singing it and unclear how it came to mind, and I'm sure my mother had some effect with that uh, long ago. Uh, but Jesus loves the little children, and that is a true sentiment. In fact, that is the first uh, point that I'll make this morning, and it has underneath it, if you are taking notes, five subpoints that we will discover in the text. So point number one, Jesus loves the little children. Uh, first subpoint, A, he has time for them. He has time for them. The disciples, uh, I presume, do not think that Jesus has time for the little children. I read one commentator who notes, and we will make note of it later on, that um, this passage appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, the gospels that try to give a chronological chronological account of Jesus' life. This account of Jesus rebuking the disciples this way appears in all three, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. Um, and in all three, it is immediately followed by Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. I don't know if that was a scheduled encounter, uh, but there, I read at least one person commenting on it who uh, wondered if the disciples were not uh, in a hurry to scurry Jesus off to his, his encounter with uh, a CEO, a powerful person, and did not have time for the children. I presume they thought they were doing a good thing. Um, Children, uh, in general, are a bit of work, and if you have someone who's trying to stand up and teach or get something done, they can be a bit of a distraction to whatever that person is trying to get done. Um, This says little children, which in the Greek is the word for toddlers and younger. So these are not just children, these are Uh, the very smallest of children, um, the ones who require the most attention, the ones who are the most fragile and the most needy. When it says the disciples rebuked those who brought them, we don't have any inkling of what they said. 
Um, I presume it was something of now is not the time or uh, this is not what Jesus is, is doing today or we came to preach the message uh, of the kingdom. But we don't know what they said. Those are all presumptions. Whatever it was, here we have in three of the synoptic gospels, uh, which are credited to the account of the disciples themselves, they have no problem looking back on it after the fact and calling it for what it was. They rebuked these people. Um, that's their evaluation of what they did. Uh, this is not the right thing here. Shouldn't be doing this. When Jesus saw that they rebuked him, it says he was greatly displeased. Um, now, I am familiar, I think, with um, the Lord being displeased with me. I've had experiences where I am fairly certain that the Lord is not happy uh, with me, but I have never experienced face-to-face -face the Lord's displeasure. I don't know how Jesus looks when he's angry or upset, um, when he's not pleased. Maybe he has a fatherly look of disappointment. I don't know. Maybe he has a look of outrage or confusion. That can also be a fatherly look sometimes. Those of you, uh, yeah, John's showing Jana his best fatherly look. I have one of those too. Sometimes it's just a slow shake of the head with befuddlement, like, what, in, what were you thinking? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how Jesus expressed this displeasure, but it was obvious that he was not happy. And then he corrects them with this saying, beginning with, let the little children come to me. So, Jesus loves the little children, Subpoint one. He has time for them. Um, he may be a very busy man. He may be about the most important work in human history, but he has time for little children. Even little children who will not understand the words that he's saying, um, who will not remember the encounter, he has time for them. Second subpoint: he grants them ongoing access to himself. He not only says, let the little children come to me, as in, I have time for them right now, but he says, and do not forbid them. Um, so he grants them ongoing access. It's not merely that he makes time for them in this encounter, but he makes it clear to his disciples that whatever their interpretation of what he was supposed to be doing, this was part of it, and that they were not to forbid the children from coming to him. Third subpoint. He picks them up in his arms. Uh, strikes me as a very affectionate thing to do with a young child, a small child. Um, we often, uh, as parents, Allison and I have uh, counseled our own kids, please do not pick up the little babies at church. <laughs> now they get to an age where that's perfectly fine, uh, as long as it's okay with, with the baby's parents, but... We, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience with a loving child who just wants to hold a baby and you are watching maybe from a distance in horror as this child who can't seem to eat breakfast without spilling things all over the place is walking around with someone else's infant and you're thinking, well, you know, ah, what? <laughs> if this person only knew what I have seen this child, you know, drop iPads and computers, and they, here they're walking around with, with uh, squirming babies. Uh, I've had that experience, but there is, 
Um, there is something um, powerful about holding a child and realizing that you have the entire life of a person in your hands and that this is a helpless person and that this is a person who can't provide for themselves. And we are meant to see here Jesus picking up little children like this. That's not necessarily prescriptive. I'm not saying as soon as we should finish the service, just go find every baby you can and take them away from their their mothers and fathers and say, Jesus did it, I want to hold this kid. Uh, I don't know. But you clearly see the heart of of the Lord. He 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 was not a proud person. He did not see it beneath himself as a man to pick up children and to love on children and to hold children. He's not a proud person. It also wasn't something reserved merely for biological family members. He, he, he loved children who, in a biological sense, were not, were not his, his own physical offspring. Children who we presume he, did, he had not met before, that he did not know. And he picks them up into his arms. The fourth sub-point, it says he prays for them. Now, in the text that we read, it says um, that he blessed them at the end of verse 16. But it's the exact same word from earlier in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 8, where it says that he blessed the fish before they ate it. I don't think that he was conferring a, a blessing um, on the fish. After all, they were going to be eaten. So I, but uh, he's, it, it, blessing here is a term Mark uses for prayer, which is what the parents of these children, uh, we can assume, were bringing them to Jesus for, that he might, that he might hold them, that he might pray for them. They recognized the value of the Lord, and they wanted their children, even before an age of recognition or understanding, they wanted them to be prayed over by Jesus, and he prays for, for children. And then the fifth and final subpoint that we'll see here in this heading of Jesus loves the little children, he prioritizes them in his church. Now, you won't get this from, from this section in Mark 10, but if you turn to Mark Nine. It's in the passage I read at the beginning of the service in verse 37 of Mark chapter 9, which should be a page away or perhaps a swipe away, whatever you're, you're following along on there. Uh, Mark chapter 9, if you look at verse 37, it says, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Now that is the most value that Jesus can confer on a human being to, to associate himself with that person. He's saying, this is how you should think of, of, of little children, again, small children, that uh, whoever receives them in my name, which is an important, that's an important phrase. This is not talking about just people who are kind to children. This is not talking about just people who love being around kids. That's not what this means. To receive a little child in the name of Jesus is to love them with the love of the Lord, to care for them in the name of the Lord, to serve that child in the name of the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Whoever receives a little child like that um, receives me. This is uh, not unique to little children. This is also, in Matthew 10, what Jesus says about Christians who follow him faithfully, that those who receive Christians who follow him faithfully are receiving Jesus himself. So this is an identity that Jesus makes with his own people, but he confers that same relationship upon small children, um, toddlers, infants, babies. Um, So he prioritizes them in his church and among his people. And he does the same thing with all all Christian people. 
um, here in Mark 9 and in Matthew 10. Um, just an observation from that. It is no small thing to, to hurt the king's man or the, the king's woman. Um, when an ambassador goes and represents us in a foreign country, um, and he takes up his residence, even in a country where perhaps there are strong diplomatic challenges, a country where it may not be safe for uh, Americans to travel. But when an ambassador goes to a place like that, he's not going on his own behalf. He's going on behalf of a country. And it's a, it's a, a big deal um, to go after the ambassador of a country. It's historically been a big deal to go after the ambassador of a king. In older times when we didn't have a digital communication and global communication and countries needed to communicate with one another, they would send ambassadors uh, on behalf of a king to other countries around them on a regular basis. And even when there was great animosity between those kingdoms, those ambassadors were generally treated well because it was understood to mistreat the ambassador was to invite the wrath of the king or the kingdom that you were consulting with. And I'll say this, when we think of what Jesus says here about his identity with children and his identity with his people, we should recognize it's a big deal to mistreat the representative of a king, uh, the person whom a king identifies himself with. That should fuel right Christian treatment of one another, but it should also fuel a a very particular understanding of small children. Um, Jesus uh, offers protection to children in this effect, even warning in another passage of God's judgment to those who would hurt a child or mislead a child. He, of course, makes it clear in his law in the Old Testament um, the protection afforded to children, women as well, even slaves or servants, but for children too. So it's a big deal how we treat little kids and how we think about little kids, and what we do with little kids. That's the first point. Jesus loves the little children. That's obvious in the text. Now, second point from the text. The kingdom of God is for people who are of the same kind as children. Now, I want to read this to you again. This is from Mark chapter 10. This is what Jesus tells them. Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. That, that English phrase, of such, is one Greek word, and it means kind or type. In other words, what Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is for people who are of the same kind or type as these little children, uh, infants, toddlers, little children. Now, that ought to catch your attention. That ought to catch your eye. If, you, uh, if, if we presume to have a place in God's kingdom then it ought to matter to us. It ought to catch our attention. When, when we read something where Jesus is saying, here's the kind or the type of people who the kingdom of God is for. But he doesn't stop there. Notice how he doubles down in the text. Verse 15. If the first one didn't catch your eye, this one should. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, that ought to catch the thoughtful reader's attention. Because Jesus is not simply saying, well, um, you know, we should all be like little children in some way. Now, he's, he's doubling down on that. 
Even with the word here in the English, it says assuredly, which I think is is kind of the equivalent of the modern day. You better know this. You know, this is, this is for real. Let me tell you the truth about this. To be honest with you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, we have to be of the same kind or type then as little children. And you can read that one of two ways. You could say, well, that kind of stinks. I don't want to be like a child. Whatever that means, it doesn't sound good. And I've grown up and I'm mature now and I have no interest in regression. But if you think about it, it is actually very good news. And I would ask you for a second to consider the alternative. Imagine that Jesus had looked at the rich young ruler and said, the kingdom of heaven is for people of this type. That would be very bad news. That would be bad news. I am not rich, I don't think I'm very young anymore, and I am a ruler of nothing, okay? Imagine if Jesus looked at a high class of people, say he went to the intellectuals, the scholarly type, and he said, now let me tell you something, guys. He's got his disciples assembled here, and he said, the kingdom of God is for, is for these kind of people. I mean, that would be a... That would be a difficult thing to accept. That would be a bad message for many of us because we look at that and we're like, I am not that kind of person. So this is good news that the kingdom of God is accessible to people who are like little children because presumably we ought to be able to tackle that. If, if the kingdom of heaven is for the Bill Gates of the world, then that would be a high bar. That would be, that'd be tough. But it's not for the Bill Gates type in the world. It's for the little children type. So I would say this is good news. This has to do, notice in the text, with those who receive the kingdom of God. Um, Just this week I had conversations with people who were concerned that they were not ready to receive um, Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were not ready to accept Jesus as their Savior. Now, that's what this is talking about. This has to do with those who are going to receive the kingdom of God. Um, I told you, in all three of the Gospels, we have this story, and then the context of it, immediately following, is the story of this rich young ruler. And if you know the story of the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus, and he says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is two verses removed from Jesus saying what it takes to receive the kingdom. You have to become like one of these little children. It's, it's for this kind of people. And here's this rich, wealthy, powerful young man. And he shows up and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a little moral test. And the guy says, well, I passed the moral test. I keep all of, I, since I was a kid, he says, since I was a child, I've done my best to keep all the commandments. And then Jesus tells him, well, let me tell you what you lack. You know, Luke says, one thing you lack, um, go and sell your possessions, give them to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And, um, and it says the guy wouldn't do that. It says he walked away sorrowful because he had great possession. And, 
That's in contrast to here. So what are we meant to see in the contrast? Well, there's this great little application at the end here in verse 23 of Mark 10. So we get in verse 13, Jesus talking about little children and that type of people receiving the kingdom. Then we get the rich young ruler. Now verse 23 of Mark 10, we get the summary. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Well, why do you think they were astonished at that? I think it's because they grew up in an understanding that a person's righteousness was dependent upon their religious works, their religious actions. And it makes sense that people who have lots of money ought to be able to do lots of things that are good in the world, right? I mean, don't we see that among the celebrities of the world anyway? Look at what I'm doing with my money. Look at what I'm doing with my charity. And I think the disciples were very comfortable with that idea. And they were astonished that this man um, who had all this money could not bring himself into peace with God and had walked away from Jesus. And now Jesus has said this. But look at, at what Jesus says. In verse 24, disciples were astonished. Jesus answered them again. He responds to their astonishment. And he said this, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And there it is. Trust, trust, trust. How hard it is for those who trust, for those whose faith, whose security, whose hope, whose joy is in riches. How hard it is for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now compare that then to a little child. Um, got a little child over there. See one? One back there on Angie's lap. Uh, John's just about the age where he still counts in this category. I think, you've got a little child over here. You look, it's not hard to find him, right? All right, now. Um, there comes a point in a child's life when they are no longer very trusting. If you're a parent, you've seen this, right? Um, there comes a point where um, the child uh, begins to ask for promises when you tell them that you're going to give them some kind of reward. Like, hey, if you, you, know, if you, if you do this, then we'll go do this next. And, and I've, I remember the the time when my children started looking at me and say, do you promise? You know, it's like, wait, why do I have to promise? What are you talking about? And there, but there, there's, there comes a point in time when the child begins to doubt his or her parents' ability to provide lunch. Um, and if you've had this experience, you're walking around at a zoo or at an event, and the child begins to look up to you and they say, um, when are we going to eat? You know, and you look at the child and, and maybe the first time you say, we'll get something to eat soon. You'll be okay. And a few minutes go by and, and they remind you in case you've forgotten that a few minutes have now gone by and we have still not found something, something to eat. And they remind you, hey, you know, when are we going to... And they will continue to remind you until you threaten them, discipline them, or provide food. Um, that they, will, they will just stay with it. They no longer have confidence in your ability because it's not here and they want it here. But, but prior to this age, 
Children are entirely dependent and, and entirely trusting. There's an age when you can take uh, you know, a one-year-old and set them on the edge of the couch and say, come to me, and they jump. You know, there's no doubt. And then you take that same kid two years later and you put them up on the counter and you find out if they're a daredevil or not. The daredevil will jump and everyone else will be like, I don't know, you know. We have a joke in our house and I'll embarrass him. Um, Sorry, son, there are consequences, I guess, to being my child someday. My son is a very brave lad. He does lots of brave things, things that I wasn't brave enough to do. I'll couch everything I'm getting ready to say in that, uh, in that entry. But if I try to put my son on my shoulders, it will seem like I'm ripping his legs off. It will, he will respond, maybe not now, he might do better, but it was a point of hilarity with him growing up that just lifting him up in the air brought tremendous terror, and I, I exploited that a few times for some easy laughs with his older sisters, but by and large, I've respected this great fear that he has that I will drop him. Um, that, but there's a time prior to that when kids are very trusting, and they just depend. They just, they just have faith. They just believe. Um, if, you, um, if you give little children the opportunity, they will give very generously in an offering plate, um, many of them will give very generously in an offering plate. Percentage-wise, they will, without thought, outgive uh, adults uh, nine times out of ten. What did you give for your birthday? Well, I got this, you know, two dollars and fifty cents. What do you want to do with it? And I've had my kids say this: Can I put it in the offering plate at church? Just no thought. Why? They don't. Tr- they don't. You could say, well, they have no concept of money. Maybe they have a better concept than we do in some regard, because they don't trust it. They don't think of it that it's going to make me happy. They don't think, well, what, what is this going to mean if I don't have it? You know, they, they don't think about that. Now, I don't think Jesus here is calling us to a naivety. But I think he's pointing out to his disciples that in order to receive the kingdom of heaven, you have to live by faith in him. You have to live with simple faith. Simple faith doesn't mean doing simple things. Simple faith means God is in control. God loves me. God will provide for me. That is a a tough message, I think, for Americans because we are always being sold something. Always. doesn't seem to matter where you look or what you're doing. Someone is trying to sell you something. Someone has paid for the spot and they are trying to sell you. And then we are, are usually always thinking somewhere floating around in the back of your mind, you know what I'd really like to have? You know what I'd really like to do someday? You know, we're, we're thinking of buying things all the time too. And if you're always thinking about selling something or you're always thinking about buying something, then this is a hard message to relate to because the kingdom of heaven is neither bought nor sold. And I think that's what was so astonishing to the disciples when uh, I got the chance to speak to some youth last week, um, I told the parable of the, or the story of the rich young ruler to them. And I made it interactive because they're kids and uh, it was a good setting for it. And I said, what would you do if you had all the money in the world? And, uh, you know, they gave me their answers. I think the cheapest thing one of them said was, I would buy a box of paintballs. I said, see me, I, I think I said, see me afterwards, we can make that dream come true. You know, if that's, if that's what it takes, you know, we can, <laughs> you know, but I, that, was an, that was a response. And then they gave a bunch of other ones that I thought were interesting, silly. Um, but, but uh, you know, then I, I asked, what do you think Jesus means here when he talks to the rich young ruler? And one of them very sincerely said, I think he means 
that you can go to heaven if you um, give um, your money, lots of money to poor people. And you could see how you take that away from, from that parable. Uh, you know, you could see how you could, you could be confused there. I think that's what the disciples thought. Like, you can go to heaven if you, if, you, if you do good things with money. But at the end of the day, that's merely trust in money. That's not trust in God. That's not faith in God. Now, I want you to do good works. I think Christians should do good works. I think Christians should be charitable. I think Christians should care about needs and should meet needs. But heaven is not bought and heaven is not sold. There was one transaction with heaven on the line, and that was a transaction that Jesus himself made at the cross. He, he purchased heaven. You can't, you can't buy it. We can't buy it. You can't buy it with your good works. You can't buy it with your good deeds. You certainly can't buy it with your money. Uh, there's this interaction that, uh, that Peter has with this man who thinks that he can buy the gift of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts with money. <laughs> and Peter's pretty clear with him, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy. You thought that you could buy fellowship with, with God. You, you, can't, you can't make the transaction because the Bible says the transaction has been made on your behalf. And the cost, the cost was too rich for your blood. It's too expensive. You, can't, you, you couldn't have paid it if you tried. It's not for sale and you couldn't have paid for it with your own blood. Jesus paid for it with his blood. That's too rich for you. Your blood is a sinner's blood. Your death is a sinner's death. Your death is somewhat justified by the fact that you are guilty before God. Jesus was not guilty. And that's why when we sing a song like what we sang, now, now Lord, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. Jesus paid a ransom for your life so that you can have the kingdom of heaven. He paid a price for your life. He redeemed you. He purchased your life. That's why we use language like I serve Jesus or I, you know, I, Jesus is my master. It's the idea that Jesus has made a transaction that we could not make. Um, if you would receive the kingdom of God, you would receive it by faith in what Jesus has done for you. You don't have to do anything to make your life ready to receive the kingdom of God. You don't have to do any good works to prepare. You don't have to go clean up this one thing that you've been doing wrong for a long time. You don't have to commit to give X amount of dollars to this or X amount of hours to this. That's not what this is about. If you would receive Jesus, you have to receive him like a little child. You have to receive him with faith that he actually will do what he said he has done for you. That he actually will forgive you. That he actually will give you the promises that he's made. That he will be with you and never leave you nor forsake you. You do that by faith, not by transaction. Not by transaction. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. Those of you who are secure in your relationship with the Lord, I'm going to ask you to pray just quietly. And those of you who know that you do not have fellowship with God right now, that you are not in a right place in your relationship with God, 
that if you died today, you would meet God as a judge, not as a father, but as a judge. And if you know that today, if you know that there has not been reconciliation and peace between you and God, I'm going to call on you to consider something intensely important that the great God of the universe did not send his son into the world to make salvation incredibly difficult for you. But instead, he sent Jesus into this world to give you access to the kingdom of God. You may never perform a miracle. I haven't. You may never go overseas and do something that'll cost you your life to persecution. I haven't either. But if you would know God, all that is required of you is to trust Jesus Christ. To trust that his death satisfied God's judgment of your sin. To trust that his resurrection paved the way for eternal life with God to trust that the promises that he has made, no more, no less, he will fulfill. Any good father or mother should expect their little child to have that sort of confidence in them. That when they say we will do something, it means we will do it. Now we may be poor examples of that on this earth sometimes as mothers and fathers, but God is no poor father. And Jesus is no poor king. And if you know that you need Jesus in your life and you need peace with God, I would ask you to pray and surrender your life to him now. In your prayer, confess that you're a sinner. In your prayer, acknowledge what Jesus has done. And then ask God for help. Ask God to save you. The Bible says that he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I'll pray for you now. Father, I I would like people to be saved. I would like people to know you. And I would like people to serve you. But I trust in your work in those things. Um, I ask that you'll give people clarity on where they stand with God. I ask, Father, that you'll work in their hearts. And, Father, I ask that your people will be diligent in prayer and evangelism. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.